0: Join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture.
1: A Time comes in your life when you feel that, you know, it's okay what you've been doing, but if it's not getting anywhere, if you don't feel that it's really something that you want to carry on, then I think you have to change track.
0: It's hard to overstate how much of an impact Yasmin Lari has had on the field of architecture. Recognized as Pakistan's first female architect, she established her name by designing some of the country's most iconic buildings and helping to craft the country's visual identity. Her work includes landmarks like the Finance and Trade Center, the Taj Mahal Hotel in Karachi, and the Pakistan State Oil Head Office. Big, brutalist concrete structures that you can't miss. So it's all the more striking that she's since done a 180, giving up her corporate practice to focus on sustainability and humanitarianism. Now working at the intersection of architecture, climate activism, and social justice, she uses the power of design to help those living on the margins. Earlier this year, Yasmin was awarded one of the world's highest honors in architecture, the Royal Gold Medal from the Royal Institute of British Architects. Today I'll speak to her about why she changed paths so dramatically, and what she thinks of that earlier work that made her a star architect. I reached her in Karachi, Pakistan.
1: It is young people who respond better with my kind of, you know, thought process there. I think it's something that resonates with them because it's all about the difficulties everybody is facing and the challenges that we're all facing in this century. So, you know, I think it probably, uh, young people understand it better than others.
0: It's fascinating that you say that because I, I also mentioned to my father who's you know is, uh coming up to 80 this year that we were going to be speaking and he was terribly excited. <laughs> and he was he was like, "Oh, this is this is something I've got to I I can't wait to listen to." But I think that's what's unique about you, Yasmin, of the many things that are remarkable is that in some ways your career has been so vast that you're speaking across generations now.
1: Mhm. Well, I hope it makes sense of what I'm saying, and I hope people follow also what I say. Otherwise, it probably won't be any use. So let's see. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> let's, let's see.
0: Uh, sweet, yeah. I'm going to jump right into it. With your permission, I want to begin at a more personal place. And something, as I was preparing for today, kind of struck me and I resonated with. These last few years have been a time of incredible loss. And I find that grief and the process of grieving has become part of what it means to be alive. And in some ways, the pandemic showed this up and in ways that perhaps we couldn't have imagined. And I know you lost your beloved husband in the first year of the pandemic. I lost my closest friend and mentor just as lockdown began around the world and more recently I lost my mother and so this idea of grief and grieving Yasmin have been really present in my heart and then I was looking at your work and you know Although this has been a time of loss and pain and hurt, your work has also been responding for a long time to loss and pain and hurt, the displacement of people, the shrinking rights given to women, economic and political repression. So the question that stayed with me was, what place does grief play in your work today?
1: I'm not sure whether it's grief so much, Rahman. I think it's more like looking at injustices that abound in my country. And especially injustices towards women now that, of course, leads to grief as well. But I think there is a slight difference in how you deal with the two emotions. Of course, uh, you know, as you rightly say, loss of our beloved ones is very difficult to carry always. But, you know, what was surprising was during that COVID time, which was really, I mean, COVID is a very cruel disease because it allows no time to really even, you know, prepare for the loss that, you know, might be coming your way. And that's the worst thing about it, I think, because, you know, you realize, yes, people have to go and and you will let them go. But with every kind of other ailment, you will know or expect it or, or anticipate it. In this case you never know until the last moment whether somebody will survive or not so that is the worst thing about it and also mm-hmm. the way the protocols were at the time i couldn't see my husband once i took him into the hospital and to the icu that was it i never saw him again because he had to be carried mm-hmm. afterwards just to the you know to the graveyard and uh, and so on so but what was of course for me amazing was that i suffered from the same strain But for whatever reason, I was saved, I did not die. So I feel that I carry a certain responsibility now to be able to pay back for whatever, you know, I've had through my life. And also, you know, I mean, there's just so much that requires to be done. And especially now with the last year's flood, it's the most devastating, you know, flood ever that you can imagine. And uh, now there's something like at least three, probably even four million families that have nothing. Yeah, they have no shelter, they have no food, they have really literally nothing. And I believe something like 10 million kids are uh, vulnerable to disease. So it's a very bad time. Mm -hmm. But going back to COVID-19, you know, when I thought at that time, because all of us suffered and COVID-19 does not differentiate between people who live in palaces or the ones who live in shanties. For COVID-19, it strikes the same way, everybody. And so one had hoped that by the end of it, once you had control over it, that the world will change, that we will have a more kind of egalitarian, you know, sort of communities living together, or at least everybody will have the same kind of environment and better living conditions. But soon we've gone back to the same kind of way of living, the same kind of carbon emissions, the same kind of very kind of lavish lifestyles, whoever can afford it. And the rest, of course, are languishing in whatever state they might be in. So disparities have not lessened. I think in many ways, they might have even grown further.
0: Yasmin, as you're speaking, I sense, you know, not just a feeling, (laughs) but a passion and a present urgency in your voice and mission. And, And as you sort of enter this phase of your career, do you find yourself, you know, feeling that the crisis is more urgent than ever, and that your work is more important than ever?
1: Well, you know, for the longest time, I've felt that uh, if somehow I could stop displacement, because I've seen women and children particularly suffering from displacement, because as you know, Pakistan is among the frontline states in terms of climate change and disasters. And uh, We've just seen so many of them. And every time it happens and uh, people who would want to rise up, they cannot because the next one starts, you know, strikes again. So vulnerabilities keep on increasing. There is no possibility of any reduction. And the last year's one, and also, as you know, the frequency is increasing, the intensity is increasing. I mean, we had one where so many people got displaced and Turkey had one where 50,000 people lost their lives. It's not something that, I mean, I don't think disasters are discriminating again. They can strike anywhere. And what I feel now, which I think is essential, is to see how do we help out people to be able to help themselves? I mean, this is my mission now, because no amount of funding from anywhere in the world will be able to suffice or will be able to reach out to people who have lost so much. Also, because uh, when we look at the aid giving agencies, when we look at the World Banks of the World or other banks that give la- give out loans, They're not even looking at the impact of what they're doing in terms of construction. If we know that 40% of all emissions are due to the way we construct, then why today in Pakistan with millions of dollars being gifted or being loaned by the World Bank and others, they still insist on making these brick, fired brick and and, and concrete structures, which will be high carbon. And how many will be able to get to because they're also very high cost. And on top of that, no skills are being developed. So how will they fend for themselves? I mean, I think it's a a crazy thing when people are not realizing what is the need of the art today. It is very different from what they might've thought, you know, in earlier times. So this I think is very tragic.
0: It's been an incredible journey for you Yasmin, you know, when I look at the arc of your incredible career, you know, you began in your early years designing these large brutalist buildings like the Finance and Trade Center and the Pakistan State Oil Head Office, and you've moved from that type of design into the work that you're speaking about now sustainable architecture working with marginalized communities understanding the climate catastrophe walk us through this journey from the uh, sort of the the at one time celebrated world of international modernism to zero carbon architecture. Tell us about those early years when you were sort of in the middle of that kind of, at that time, what would have been kind of a revolutionary movement, particularly for a female architect?
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) of course, I was trained as a modern architect. Contemporary architecture was the way to go, and that's what one did. But I think you also have to remember that um, Pakistan is an incredible country. It has so many opportunities and so much has not been done that whatever you want to do, you'll find there's a way to get in there and be productive. So I was very lucky to have been a Pakistani, to have wanted to just work in my country. I had no idea because as you read about me, they know that I unfortunately I had a very privileged background, which did not allow me to understand what actually, you know, what our cultural traditions were. I mean, you also have to remember that I grew up, I was probably one of the first generation of people who grew up in post-colonial world. Mm-hmm. And whatever the colonial past had uh, left for us, we were all obviously affected by that. And my father, particularly, who had been in the Indian civil service, he was one of the one of the bureaucrats who served the British, just before independence so obviously you know he and he'd been to oxford i mean this was this was done they were all sent off to oxford or cambridge and so he came back with all the what he thought was the you know western and modern ideas and so that was a period in which everybody wanted to just emulate the west in every possible manner so when i got back and my husband had been also to oxford he studied politics philosophy and economics but luckily when he came back, he belonged to, although the same family, but his father had been in politics, so he wasn't into more into public service. So then we were able to go to old towns that I'd never seen before in my life earlier. Mm. I was able to see how things were done, what were the people like, and so on. And I think that did open my eyes quite a bit. So I was able to do some social housing based on our traditions. I learned to uh, try to understand what our traditions had been. So that's why a deep study had to be done of our uh, heritage and craft and intangible heritage and all the rest of it, that Pakistan is just a treasure house for all that. So just that my life led me into places and the quirk of fate, if you like, that I got these opportunities. So I I got (laughs) these chances of doing things that many people would not have got. So what else do you expect from me then, Rahman? I mean, this had to be, wouldn't it?
0: Yes, you just said something that kind of struck me, was that bringing your education and your global learning back to Pakistan, and in a way, discovering your country for the first time, as you said, it was a surprising experience. Was it kind of an unsettling experience that all of this, as you said, rich culture, life, history was right there, and in a way you'd never seen it before?
1: I think I felt that I was such a novice in all this that I had to learn more. So I guess in a sense, it acted me on to understand more because I went off very young and I was, I mean, you know, when you're growing up and you're in a very protected environment, you don't even know what's around you or what you're missing. So I never knew what I had missed until I, you know, went round and maybe it was a good time for me to then understand or try to read up and try to understand myself as to who I was. And, uh, of course, it was just an exciting journey, if you like, to try to see what it was like to live in that manner. Very different from anything in the West or very different from even the cities that my father had got founded, which were all about, you know, gridiron pattern and all the rest of it. And that didn't have a soul. And here you went into these old towns, and it was amazing how it was bustling. There were people all around you. Uh, It had life, you know, and all these... uh, open sky terraces. I mean, there was so much living done on open sky places and especially for women who were safe there who, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, it's quite an amazing way it works. And even for today, when you look at it, uh, when you compare to the contemporary city or the way it is today, which is again becoming quite lifeless, the way, you know, you have segregated places and all the rest of it, and there's not, not a 24-hour cycle that anybody's caring for, although there have been lots of movements, but today, most cities are really, in every way, they are segregated, mm-hmm. which means that uh, a part of it is not alive at a certain time. Well, if you go to the old cities, it's alive all the time, it's bustling all the time. And so there's a lot of value in looking at those cities. Or if you maybe look at medieval cities in Europe, for instance, it's the same story. And uh, I feel that we need to go back to those roots, all of us, to try to see how we can now build you know, cities which will be suitable for human living rather than for vehicles and for roads and for other things or flyovers, I don't know what. I mean, the city is no longer a city to live in. Mm -hmm. And unless we do that, then you will not be able to lower the carbon footprint. And this whole craze about multi-storey buildings is a killing, you know, sort of way to go. We cannot afford to carry on doing it. And so we need to be looking at examples which will bring in more sanity into urbanism as well as architecture.
0: When Yasmin looks back on those earlier buildings that made her a star, she doesn't see them as mistakes. At the time, she says she wasn't thinking about issues like sustainability and social class.
1: You know, as long as you don't know and you're oblivious to something, then you can't really justify it, but at least you can overlook. But once you know that things are not so good, that there are issues with how you are working or doing then I think you have to change. You must. Otherwise, I don't know whether you can live with yourself.
0: I do wonder when, when because you're in places as you are today, like Karachi or Lahore or elsewhere, and you must pass sometimes the buildings that you designed, that you helped build. How do you feel about it now? Do you feel guilt or regret? And does it inspire and shape you in a different way?
1: I don't know. I, <laughs> I think I enjoyed every bit of it at that time, being totally oblivious to many things. And uh, the whole purpose was to create something iconic, to th- you know, something that would be impressive that nobody ever had done before. Yeah, I think I've, I've enjoyed <laughs> every part of what I've done for some reason. But I think uh, a time comes in your life when you feel that, you know, it's okay what you've been doing, but if it's not getting anywhere, if you don't feel that it's really something that you want to carry on, then I think you have to change track. And I was very lucky that I was able to do that. It's not always possible if you are running a practice and especially if you become well-known, then it's very difficult to give up. But I think it was a good thing that my husband decided to become a, a historian. He became a noted historian afterwards. He gave up his uh, own uh, managing directorship of, a, of an insurance company and he decided he to sell that company. And then he became, you know, he became a historian and he loved it. And I thought, well, you know, I should be doing the same thing. Why should I be trying to pander to the taste of a few when there's a possibility of uh, writing books and doing other things? Uh, there's a whole mass of materials we'd been collecting and I thought about time I did that. So I think it's just as well that I decided to change track. It's a good thing to do that.
0: You know, that what you mentioned, Yasmin, about the capacity to change, right? And almost the privilege to change also takes an incredible amount of, shall we say, bravery, (laughs) courage, to be able to revisit your own work, your own process, your own learning. And I know we continue to learn and to grow, but I think we also have a sense of architecture and design as being at times an incredibly can we say ego-driven space? And so as you're speaking, I'm hearing someone who's incredibly reflective, responsive, constantly thinking and challenging themselves you advocate for a new approach to architecture called barefoot social architecture i love the name you know (laughs) there's that sense of being like grounded in the space that buildings and towns and plans emerge what's the story behind the name how did you arrive at barefoot social architecture
1: Well, of course, it all started in 2005 when the earthquake struck Pakistan. And the first time I was engaged in uh, humanitarian work, I'd never done that before in my life. But if you recall at the time, that galvanized the whole nation like never before. And everybody wanted to just go and help out. They didn't know how, I didn't know how, but I thought I had to get there. And that's what I did. And it wasn't only the, in Pakistan, but everywhere. I mean, the people came from all around the world to help out. It was the most amazing kind of experience. But what was amazing was that I arrived with no workforce, no, literally no funding, no transport, literally nothing, and then help started to come in. Mm. And help came from me from all over. And i got all these volunteers, young people, young architects, young students of architecture from Pakistan, but also from all around the world, actually. So I was never alone. And that's what I keep on emphasizing to people who don't know much about humanitarianism is that that is such an amazing field. When you go in there, first of all, it's the most rewarding work that I could have ever done. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. But also that I was never alone. I always had help. I mean, if I was to start trying to count people who've helped me on that way, I mean, it's been possible. And then gradually, all kinds of help came, first in material, in kind, and then later on funds. And yeah, it was incredible. So I managed to experiment a lot. I'm a woman, so I had a lot of uh, advantages. I could go into women's quarters. Many of the workers who had come, the humanitarian workers, uh, were men. They never got a chance to even go see women, so women were really left out because most, if they were foreign women, they wouldn't like to risk it. If they were Pakistani women, they hesitated. And that showed me how, what what strength women had and how I needed to work with them. And that's what been really amazing for me that everything that I've designed, and mostly, obviously I'm conscious of the fact that they need much more help than men do. And for me, the effort is to see how do I, through architecture, how do I provide dignity to women? Because what I think we've lost and we've not somehow, you know, remembered that it's not so much the loss of uh, tangible stuff or, you know, property or whatever, but it's really the loss of, uh, of being able to live in a dignified manner. So if you're exposed, if you're displaced, if you've got everything collapsed around you and you're sitting on a mound with nothing around you, well, that's the worst possible thing that can happen to you. So that's why what I think was important is to see that we avoid displacement in all possible cases. And that's what I think professional architects and engineers got to do is to design buildings that will be safe. And also that it's a matter of, you see, what happens is when you have whole devastation, everything is gone, you start with a clean slate. Everything is needed. It can bring about a whole social transformation if you do it right. So that's what social barefoot architecture is. It's not about just building. It's about building people's lives. And I think it can all be done. And I think architecture is the best tool. And that's why you have to be a good designer to do that. That's why I keep on pleading. We need good designers in this field to work for the poor. The rich don't need the expertise. They can have them anytime.
0: One example of how her work goes beyond architecture involves empowering people to find new ways to support themselves financially. After the earthquake in northern Pakistan, she organized a gathering of women and helped them set up a program to sell bead products. At first, it just seemed like a good source of income.
1: But I think what we found was that once women were empowered through this bead craft that would be sold by their husbands, actually, or their sons or whatever, everybody decided to have respect for them. Mm. And the reports from the police stations I tried to gather and we found that there were less beatings of women, for instance. So I think there are these small steps that I think needed to be taken. First of all, if you have grief, and you talked about it earlier, you must have a pastime that will make you engaged in something that will get you over whatever you might be grieving about and so these women had lost so many of loved ones and they had nothing to do all day nobody had ever bothered to talk to them there was never any outlet for their grief and then once they started this program of crafts and beadwork which they were so proud of i think it, it healed them in the process somewhat so that's why when there's a disaster As I'm against charity and handouts, that doesn't work. We have to get people engaged in productive work. They want to build a better life. Yes, they've gone through a disaster. They are displaced, but they're not disabled. Right. They want to do things, they can do things. So why do they treat them? We treat them as if they were beggars and they need handouts.
0: You know, over the years, as you've worked with and, and trained new architects, what's the state of architecture as you, as you see it, you know, you're known as Pakistan's first female architect, and some places architect, and you've carried that, you know, moniker around your own career. What does it look like for women entering into the profession
1: now? Well, you know, what's interesting, of course, is that uh, I may have been the first one, but now many, there are many young women who are in the field now. You'd be surprised now, majority of the ones, new ones who enter this profession or study the profession are women. In Pakistan, they are now in the majority. So it's not that there's a dearth of opportunities for women in Pakistan or that they are not able to do it. The only issues, and I think it's worldwide, that when women do take up and study through these whole five years of studies, two years of whatever they have to do in terms of practical work. Still, it's not necessary that they will be in the field. They may not be allowed to work. So everywhere, there's a large number of women professionals who are today not active. Mm. As far as the schools of architecture are concerned, I don't think the reality has sunk in that the world has not changed. I mean... It seems to me that the same kind of courses that I was taught or the one that I studied are the same ones are being taught now too. It's not changed. It's the same pursuit of becoming a well-known, iconic architect who will just change the world in that way. And the realization that majority does not need that kind of an architect, they need a different kind of an architect now. Now, it's the people who need you, they need your services as designers At least 90% need our services, but where are the architects who will serve them? And that's true for most of the world. There are some universities which are now going into that direction, but not enough. And everywhere there are disparities. I mean, I know that many American cities like San Francisco or Los Angeles, even maybe they have uh, homeless people sleeping under the bridges. I mean, I've seen people like that in, in the UK. So the question is, what are we doing? As a profession, what are we doing to deal with these kind of situations? They all need assistance to be able to live a better life, but we're not paying much attention to those. Everywhere now there's a need. Everywhere the profession has to now change. And not only architecture, but also urban design. Because everywhere you've got urban flooding, you've got urban heat islands, you've paved everything with concrete. So obviously it's become a very, a very kind of in human kind of environment, very hard and harsh. And there's no need for that. We can change. We can humanize environments. We can bring about a more egalitarian society. We can all work towards, you know, having a better life for most of the people. I know everybody will not get it, but at least majority should. So, yeah, I think it can be done.
0: we you know you 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 describe with such pithy alacrity the crisis before us and i think this summer that's passed has made that more clear than ever you know we are in the midst of the climate catastrophe and yet even as you're going through the tragedies the crises the challenges i hear in your voice like incredible hope not just hope but like passionate hope and um, I guess a real belief that things things can change. What continues to give you that hope, Yasmin? Where does it come from? What's the wellspring of it?
1: Well, <laughs> I think it's the community that give me hope because I've decided I will bypass all uh, towers of influence and all towers of power, and I'm going directly to my people. And with this flood uh, situation, although we try to. Um, get many people to start building in a, in a sustainable manner, but there seems to be very little interest in the country. So I decided, and the government certainly is not interested, it seems to me, nor is the World Bank and others. So I decided I'll go straight to the people. The people who we train and who now, I mean, I built up a, a model from September of last year until about, you know, March, early this year, where we saw that something like 3,000 families were able to carry on this holistic model and they all became self-sufficient. But there wasn't enough interest for people to do that, unfortunately, so I said, fine, we'll go straight to the people. So all those people who've been now trained have became my core uh, training people, if you like, I call them my barefoot entrepreneurs. And now we are going into each village, they are going into each village, and the first thing is that they make them food secure, how to start growing food. Secondly, they say, okay, now you can start building a toilet and then a very inexpensive, but a very safe house. And then they can get other things also through their own savings. So it's my zero donor model, which is working extremely well. And I'm very optimistic. We'll get a target of 1 million households being rehabilitated until next year. So it's a win-win situation where my barefoot entrepreneurs are being paid. And if I tell you that <laughs> they're earning up to about eighty to ninety thousand rupees a month. Wow. And the minimum earnings today is thirty thousand rupees a month.
0: And that's incredible, Yasmin. <laughs> that really that's incredible.
1: So that's the hope. And it's all incremental. They learn how to do it tomorrow. They won't need me or you or anybody else. They do it themselves. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Isn't that the goal almost, Yasmeen, to make yourself superfluous to this process of growth?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There was a very eminent master of one of the famous colleges in Cambridge, as you might know, I was invited to be there as a visiting professor, Marshall visiting professor of Sustainable Design. So this very fine gentleman who had been with IMF, I won't name his name, but he was having a discussion, I was invited to this particular college for lunch, and so I was discussing with me and then he said, you know, Yasmin, we need at least 10 of you, name nine clones of you. I said, no, no way. I said, you know, I won't become redundant after a year. <laughs> and he wouldn't believe me, <laughs> but I think I will. Maybe it'll take a year and a half. I don't know.
0: Yasmin, tell me about A recent joy or meanness that came as an unexpected visitor.
1: I think the memories that stay with me is, again, as I mentioned, the generosity of the people of my country. When I compare those who have everything with those who have nothing and the way they treat their guests, then, you know, there is that, that everyone is treated as if, you know, they are special guests who have to be taken care of. And this you can find in every part of my country, whether you are up in the north or in the south. And you may be in any area where they have gone through tragic circumstances, but they will still be there to greet you and to, and to welcome you. So I think uh, there's something in that that I don't think many countries probably have. And I don't think you know many people even realize that Pakistan has this amazing strength within itself.
0: trust me Larry it's been an honor to have you on this being human
1: thank you so much
0: Thank you for listening to This Being Human. We'll include links in the show notes where you can see Yasmin Lari's work and learn more about her incredible career. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Haley Choi. Our executive producer is Laura Regeer. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Original music by Boombox Sound. Shago Yeg Tejvidi is TVO's managing editor of digital video and podcasts. Lori Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum. Through the arts, the Aga Khan Museum sparks wonder, curiosity, and understanding of Muslim cultures and their connection with other cultures. The museum wishes to thank the Hillary and Galen Weston Foundation for their generous support of this being human.